Amen. Kids, thanks for being with us. You can head to class. There's Pastor Jeremiah, Casimir. They're excited to have you. And for the rest of you, I'm excited you're here. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here of Cedar Mill Bible Church. It's fun to see some faces. You know, every, it feels like there's still people sort of trickling in from COVID. If you're one of those people, that's okay. We're happy you're back. Um, you're like, it's been an extended COVID, and I haven't been in church for a while, and we'll just blame COVID. We'll just leave it there, right? Okay. Yeah, it's really good to have you. Uh, we're in a series, if you're just kind of catching up with us, where we're walking um, through a section of the book of Revelation, and people keep telling me, Pastor Dave, I'm really enjoying this series in Revelation, and I just want to say, that's because you're not preaching it. Uh, it's not that easy to preach. Uh, trying to figure out what's literal, what's symbolic, you know, what's this, like, what's hyperbolic imagery, what's, you know, what's for the church of that day, what does that mean for us in our day, all these things. In fact, I think John Calvin uh, wrote a commentary on every single, he's a pretty smart guy, wrote a commentary on every single book in the Bible except Revelation, and he was asked directly, like, why not, why didn't you write a commentary on Revelation? He just said, I don't get it. That was his response. I don't get it, but I'm going to preach it. So um, at least a little part of it here. So we're, we're in this book. And of course, it's hard because Revelation is revealing spiritual realities that we don't see. It's, it's speaking to these eternal truths that are foreign to us. And it's calling us to be people who resist the ever-present temptation to adopt and live for the values of the world around us. So it's a challenging book. And, uh, and we're looking at a section of Revelation where there are seven letters written to seven churches and seven cities. And the overarching question, really, kind of if you back up and say, what is, what's the point of these letters? What's the question being asked? Here's the question Jesus is asking the church, his people. How are you doing at being the people who follow Jesus in your city? He's, he's evaluating. He's saying, what is it? How are you doing at accomplishing the mission I've given you, at shining the light of Christ in the world around you? Are you walking faithfully? Are you having a kingdom of heaven impact? in this world, and, and that's the question for the church that we're looking at today. They are, are they alive with the vibrancy of Christ? That's, that's what they're asked. Are they awake with the zeal of being God's people in the world? This is a great message because really the theme of it is sort of like wake up, so if you're sleeping in church, I can just call you out. Like most Sundays, no, but today I can, so you better be on, on your toes. And because they're asked this question, right? Like, are you awake in the world? Are you accomplishing your mission? Do you have the zeal of Christ in your life? Because they're asked the question, we're asked the question. Because these letters aren't just written to the church then, they're written to the church everywhere for all time. The number seven is sort of symbolic. And in Revelation, most scholars agree that it's the number of wholeness or completeness. And so this is Jesus' way of saying, I'm writing this to the whole church, the church every place and throughout time. So let's dive in today. We're going to read it. Here's our letter, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God 
and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is, a, and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's talk about Sardis for a minute because this is the letter to the church in that city. And Sardis is about 30 miles down the road from Thyatira. You can see it there on the map. Last week we talked about Thyatira. Um, this week um, we're in Sardis. And uh, Sardis was down the road from Thyatira in terms of its, its south, but it was actually up the road in terms of elevation. Uh, this is a, a, a city that's built right at the base of a mountain, Tamil Pius, Mount Tamil Pius. And it's just kind of nestled, nestled right in next to this mountain. You can see a couple pictures here of the ruins at Sardis. This is what remains of Sardis today. You can go there and take a tour. I've never been. Some of you have maybe. Um, this is what it would have looked like in the first century. Isn't it nice? Like I'm, I'm literally thinking... I think I'd have liked to live in Sardis. That's a nice view. Those mountain peaks right there, just kind of nestled in. Not a bad place to live. Sardis was a mountain town, sort of off the beaten path a little bit. It had its own culture. Imagine Sisters, Oregon. Sardis is, is sort of this, this getaway city. It's a sophisticated city. It was a financially prosperous city. Upper middle class people for sure, you might say it was the, the Bethany or the Cedar Mill or the West Sylvan of the region. One historian notes that it was among one of the most opulent and decadent cities in the Roman Empire. And with all this opulence came a culture of comfort, a culture sort of of upper middle class acceptance. Yes, this is a city that was part of the Roman Empire, and they had an altar to Caesar there. But Sardis, they didn't have this sort of like hardcore Roman Empire identity, not in the way like Smyrna did. They, were, they weren't as close to Rome. You know, Smyrna's right on the coast, really real close proximity to the capital of the empire. Sardis is off the beaten path. They didn't have this dogmatic allegiance. And because of this, what we learn about the church in Sardis is that it was not really facing the same kind of persecution that the other churches and the other cities were. There wasn't strong opposition in Sardis. There wasn't this constant pressure, bow to Caesar. Instead, Sardis seemed to accept the Christians. Sardis accepted the church. And not only that, it seems this church had a good name. It had built a reputation for itself. One scholar notes that the church in Sardis was known as an active Christian community characterized by good works and charitable acts. But in the sight of God, all these were only formal and external 
instead of vibrant and authentic. You see, if last week the challenge for the church was that it tolerated sin, if that was the challenge for Thyatira, then this week we find a church that has grown comfortable and complacent. And so Jesus says to them, you have a reputation for being alive, but in actuality you are dead. The word on the street, the sense from other Christians in other cities is that the church in Sardis is a people that's still zealous for the gospel and the things of God, that they're passionate about living lives committed to the king and his kingdom. But, but Jesus is writing to say, you've lost something. Sure, attendance is up. Giving is solid. The church ministry is still going outside the walls of the church, but But Jesus is saying, something isn't right. It may look right on the outside, but on the inside, it's not. One of the things we've discovered in this series is that in the opening of each letter, Jesus describes himself. He introduces himself to that particular church. And how he describes himself is connected to the problem he wants to address in that church. Community. And so, how does Jesus introduce himself here? He says, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, the seven stars, we've talked about this already, but we learned in Revelation chapter one that the seven stars are the angels or the messengers or the overseers of these churches. Some debate about amongst scholars, but the seven stars represent the seven churches. But what is meant by the seven spirits of God. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. What's that all about? Well, you might notice that there's a note in your Bible. If you have your Bible, there's a little note next to that phrase. And if you read the note down below, it'll say, another translation is the sevenfold spirit. These are the words of him who holds the sevenfold spirit of God. And the sevenfold spirit of God is a reference from Isaiah chapter 11, where the Holy Spirit is given seven identifying characteristics. The Holy Spirit is said to be the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength and knowledge and of worship. And so here at the beginning of this letter to Sardis, we meet Jesus a Jesus who is in communion with the Holy Spirit, who has the presence of God's Spirit in the palm of his hand. He's walking. This is a Jesus who is walking with the Spirit of God, who is walking closely with God. And he longs for his church, on the other hand, to do the same. But right away we read that this is not the case in Sardis. This is not a church walking closely with God. They are not walking in step with his spirit. They have lost this. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. People think you're alive, but you're dead. Do you guys know what a light year is? Are you you aware of a light year? This is not like that uncommon of a thing, right? A light year is the distance that light travels in a year moving at the speed of 186,000 miles a second. That's 11,160,000 miles per minute. It equates to 5.88 trillion miles a year 
A light year is 5.88 trillion miles. You can't even wrap your brain on, around how like, far that is, can you? You have no sense of it. Neither do I. That's okay. We just know it's a really long, long way. That's a light year. The farthest known star from Earth we know of is 28 billion light years away. You have a sense for how far away that is? Here's the closest star to Earth other than the sun. Uh, it's a star called Proxima Centauri, which sounds like something out of Avatar. Um, That's what they call it. It's 4.24 light years away. That sounds really close, doesn't it? Like we should just get on, a, on the, like the space shuttle and fly there. It's only 4.24 light years away. Oh yeah, that's 4.24 times 5.88 trillion. That's still a long, long way away. But I was reading this week, all that to say, I was reading this week about a star that astronomers estimate is 33 light years away from Earth, just another recently discovered star. And what they're saying is this. This is kind of trippy to think about. We think that star is still burning. We think that star is still alive. But the reality is because it's 33 light years away, it could have burned out. It could have died 25 years ago. And we're just seeing the light that is still sort of in route, that is still traveling to us from that star. That star could appear to be shining, but it might just be dead. Friends, this is the church in Sardis. People think that it's shining, but in reality, it has burned out. Here's a way of saying it. The church in Sardis, is, is do, are, they're, doing the thi- they're doing things for God, but they have lost the presence of God. And so God in this letter tells them to wake up. Wake up, church, because you have fallen asleep. And so here's what I want to do today. I, I want to ask three questions about this letter. Here they are. Ready? What does it mean to be asleep? Like, what does it look like when you have fallen asleep? Two, what happens when you fall asleep? And three, what, what must we do in order to wake up? Here we go. What does it mean to be asleep? Wake up, Jesus says. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. See, I, I, what I believe has happened here is that the comfort of Sardis has led to complacency in the church. The comfort of Sardis has actually hurt their faith. You see, no one likes persecution, right? No no one's really, no one's praying for persecution. No one enjoys struggle. No one wants a culture. No one wants to live in a culture. No one desires a culture that puts pressure on you to not walk with Jesus. But friends, here's the truth. Sometimes conflict creates commitment. Sometimes pressure produces Passion. As my good friend Chris Rock says, pressure creates diamonds, not hugs. And you're like, did he just quote Chris Rock? I did. I did. (laughs) Friends, the comfort of Sardis has led to complacency in the church. How about us? Have we become so comfortable in our world, in our culture, in our city? Have we become complacent in our faith? Have we become sleepy about following Jesus? Have we lost the zeal of his closeness in our lives? 
Let me give you three things I believe are indicators of a sleepy church, a complacent church. Ready? One, a sleepy church is complacent in prayer. A sleepy church is complacent in their prayer life. Friends, let me remind us how the church started. Right at the beginning of the book of Acts, sorry about that, Jesus, he leaves, and now the church, now his followers are on their own, and so the very first thing they do is pray. Then they have to nominate another disciple to kind of fill the slot that Judas, you know, left. And so what do they do? They pray. And then they preach the gospel and 3,000 people decide to follow Jesus. And so then they decide, hey, let's devote ourselves to prayer. And then Peter and John go to the synagogue to pray. And on their way, you'll remember this, they encounter a man who's, who's lame, who's paralyzed. And so, so Jesus, uh, or so Peter um, prays for this guy and he's healed miraculously healed. And this, of course, draws a crowd. And so he preaches the gospel again. And a few more thousand people become believers. And the religious authorities are not happy about this. So they grab the guys, Peter and, um, and John, and I'm distracted by this mic, and I'm going to shift to this handheld. All right. Where are we? Peter and John, right? Stay with me here. The religious authorities are upset with them, and so they arrest them, and they question them, but then they let them go the next day, and so they go back to the other followers of Jesus, and they say, hey, they arrested us, and they warned us, stop talking about Jesus. You better stop talking about Jesus. They're like the guys who killed our Lord, who hung him on a cross and murdered him publicly, they're now after us. And so what do you think they do? They pray. They pray. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And what do you think they prayed for? I mean, what would you have prayed for? Yeah, I'd have prayed for peace. I'd have prayed for mercy. I'd have prayed for, for protection, for help. I don't, you know, here's what we'd have prayed for. We'd have prayed for safety. We love to pray for safety. Hedge of protection, travel mercies, don't we? We love to pray for the safety. And we live in the safest nation in the history of the world. And we pray for safety more than anyone else has ever prayed for safety. That's what we'd have prayed for. Is that what they prayed for? Listen to what they prayed. It says, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They prayed for boldness. They prayed for courage. They prayed for faith. They prayed to cut to trust God in the midst of a, an extremely difficult situation. Friends, an awake church is a praying church. How are we doing? Two, a sleepy church is complacent in witness. A sleepy church is complacent in witness. You know, one of the two often overlooked parts in the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. You remember Jesus? He goes to this well in Samaria. This woman's there. He starts to talk to her, which is kind of racy in that day for Jesus to address this woman. She's a Samaritan even. That was even a little more, you know, semi-scandalous that he's talking to a Samaritan. And yet we always point that out. But maybe the most overlooked part of that entire story is at the very end. The big conclusion of that whole story, of that whole interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, it's summed up in this verse, John 4, 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's 
testimony. This woman can't stop talking about Jesus. She meets Jesus and she can't shut up about him. Because when you meet him and when you know him and when you are close with him, you long for others to be close with him as well. Have you gotten sleepy? Was there a day when you were praying for people to come to faith? When you were often engaged in spiritual conversations? When you were thinking about who you could invite to church? Maybe, friends, it's time to wake up. Let me ask you this. Is there someone? Someone hurting right now? Someone struggling right now. Someone not walking with God right now. Someone who needs the Lord in their life right now. Someone you could share with. Someone you could invite to church. I don't know if you know this or not, but Christmas is coming. Are you aware of that? Yeah. Christmas Eve will be here before you know it. And now I just stressed like half the room out, didn't I? Let me tell you this. Even in Portland people are open to coming to church on Christmas Eve. And we will. We'll have a gathering here at one and three. Two gatherings, actually. And at those gatherings, we will celebrate Jesus, and we will talk about Jesus, and we will lift up the good news of God's great love for us in Jesus. And and here's the truth. We'll have a crowd. People will come. It's Christmas Eve. People are going to come but who might not come unless you invite them. Who might not come unless you text them and say, hey, we'd love to have you join us for Christmas Eve this year. Who might hear the good news of God's great love for them if you would step in to your witness. Church, let us not grow sleepy in our witness. Three, a sleepy church is complacent in ministry. Do you have a ministry? No, I'm serious. Do you have, if you're a follower, if you're in here today and you're a follower of Jesus, do you have a ministry? And here's what I mean by that, because I'm not just asking, are you volunteering at church? That's not the question. It may be part of the question, but it's not the question. People can volunteer at church. It's not a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing. But I believe our our calling as Jesus followers is to be people who have a ministry, people who use, listen to this, use our gifts and talents in places where we are called and passionate to have an impact for the kingdom of heaven. We're called to be people who use our gifts and talents in places where we are called and passionate to have an impact for the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and maybe that sounds just too big for you. You're like, wow, that sounds like pastor stuff to me. Like, I mean, wow, right? It doesn't have to be that big. Here's an example. Let's give you an example. This is a real example, by the way. And you'll notice this now when you go to the restroom here. There is a person in our church who has a ministry of putting and maintaining little bowls of rocks underneath the soap dispensers in our bathroom. Have you ever been in our bathrooms over here? Those little bowls of rocks? That wasn't like Pastor Ted. It's a person in our church who's like, these countertops are always messy, and I want the bathrooms in the church to be neat and clean and tidy and fresh for guests and visitors. And so this person has a ministry of of a bowl with some rocks in it, and then she maintains it. 
because she loves the church and she wants the kingdom of heaven to advance. There's another woman in our youth ministry, and I didn't ask her permission to say this, so I won't say her name, but it's Cheryl Pullen. And she has a ministry... She doesn't just have, yeah, her kids are cheering for her, right? She doesn't just have a group of of high school girls that she's been with since sixth grade. She does. She loves her girls. She meets with her girls, and she prays for her girls, and she, she tries to be and offer Jesus to her girls constantly. Cheryl has a ministry. She's not just a volunteer. And it doesn't even have to be in the church, I mean, you are the church, so have a ministry as the church. There are people in this church, several couples I know of, who have a ministry to their neighborhood. They're intentional about connecting and knowing and praying for the people who live around them and engaging spiritual conversations and then inviting them to come to church when it's appropriate They see themselves as missionaries in their neighborhoods. They have a ministry. One more. Some of you know Cal Perkins. Cal Perkins just passed away a few weeks back, a couple weeks ago in our congregation. Cal was 80. He was a sound engineer. And he was a pretty, some of you didn't know this, but he was a pretty accomplished sound engineer. He worked for JBL and Fender and Mackie and Panasonic. He he did front of house mixing for artists that include Louis Armstrong, Ray Charles, James Brown, The Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix, just to name a few. And Cal would tell you about this if you talk to him, by the way, if you know Cal. He, he, he loved to talk. He was passionate about sound. He was passionate about it. And I remember a few years ago when our sound system just exploded in the middle of worship one day. Cal was sitting out here and he was like, this is my ministry. I mean, he, I mean, he, I mean, serious, I'm serious. I mean, he made it his life mission and ministry to make sure we have the very, it's ironic that my mic was popping today. So Cal, the work was unfinished, buddy. You know, I don't know. He's like, quit taunting me. I'm in heaven now, Dave. Like, you know, but, but he just works tirelessly to make sure he designed our sound system after like the sound system of this famous hall. He wanted, he would not settle for anything less than the best for us. He refused to cut corners because this was his ministry for his church. You see, friends, when Christians are awake, they realize I'm not just here to get from the church. I'm here to contribute as the church in the world where God has placed me? Do you have a ministry? And here's the point again, friends, if you've forgotten what we're talking about. The comfort of Sardis has led to complacency in the church. They're complacent about prayer. They're complacent about witness. They're complacent about ministry. And so Jesus says to them, wake up. Here's our second question. What happens when you fall asleep? Like, There's this temptation to get sleepy in this world. What does that result in? Verse four. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Quick, quick, quick pause. This isn't in my notes, but I have to say it. Last week, I shared a little bit of a poop analogy from the pulpit. And my mother listened to the sermon and let me know on the phone this week that she didn't think poop from the pulpit was appropriate. I say that because some of you wonder, like, does anyone monitor what Pastor Dave has to say? My mom does. You never, like, get too old for your mom not to, like, you know, 
give some thoughts on your message. And so she's doing that from a distance. She lives in Nebraska, but she watches online. Hi, mom. Uh, And I have to say, it's right there in the Bible, right? I mean, like, and I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna let let it pass this week. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. To walk dressed in white in the Bible is is imagery for living righteously. To soil your clothes is a picture of of walking in impurity, of living an unrighteous life. And friends, if as a Christian you get sleepy about the fact that Jesus is with you, that he's close to you, if you forget that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, then your propensity to engage and embrace and entertain impure things will go up. I mean, think this just makes sense, right? It's hard to cuss. It's hard to steal. It's hard to sin sexually. It's hard to slander and envy and hate when Jesus is right next to you. I mean, like you're watching this movie, you're like, dude, you're with your buddies and you're about to watch this movie and then Jesus shows up with a big bucket of popcorn. What are we watching, guys? And you're like, uh, Disney Channel. You're like changing it quick, right? Because there's things you're not gonna do if Jesus is right there in the room with you. You see, as a Christ follower, you're supposed to live your entire life as if Jesus is right there with you. If you lose a sense of God's presence, soon to follow is a loss of God's purity. Our purity and his presence are always linked. So what must we do to wake up? If we're we're called to wake up, if we want to be alert to Jesus' presence in our lives, how do we do it? What must we do in order to not fall asleep to the power and presence of our God? Two verses. Verse three, remember therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. Verse five, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Friends, this is the message all throughout Revelation. This is the big message of the entire book. Remember who you are and hold on to who you are. Remember and hold on to the fact that you are living for something so much bigger than what this world has to offer. Remember that you are living as one whose name has been written in the book of life. Remember, you are living for that moment. You're living not for this world, not for the pleasures of this afternoon. You're living for that moment down the road in eternity when Jesus acknowledges you as his son or as his daughter, as his follower before God and his angels. Can you picture the moment standing before the God of the universe and then Jesus at his right-hand side saying, he's one of mine. That's my son, that's my daughter. Can you imagine that moment? Are you living for that moment? Do you remember who you are? See, what Jesus tells us in this letter is that the world wants to lull you to sleep. That in this world, you will tend to get drowsy, that you're, that you're, you're falling asleep at the wheel of your life. And so what you need, what you need, like the world, this world we live in is like Xanax. It's going to put you to sleep. 
It's hard to live on high alert all the time, is it not? Do you experience this in your life? And so what Jesus is saying we need here is an alarm. He need, he's saying you need something to constantly and consistently wake you up to the larger realities of God in your life. And that is why we are here. That's why we gather. That's why we sing worship songs. Like, why are we here? Why are we doing? Why are we singing these songs? That's why I preach these sermons. That's why we show up to this place. We show up here to remember, to be pulled out of sleep, to wake up to the fact that once again, Jesus and his kingdom are worth far more than this world. We show up here to wake up spiritually. And friends, today, today we are closing with what I would say is one of the most amazing wake-up calls I can offer you. A 14-year-old girl from our church is being baptized today. This morning, in just a few minutes, an eighth grade student, a middle schooler. Do you know how hard it is to be a middle schooler in this world these days? It's been a long time for some of you, but you go walk those middle, uh, yeah, way too long. And you go walk those middle school halls. Ain't what it used to be. It's tough. It's a tough world. It's a world that, that wants to lull, doesn't want to lull you to sleep, wants to knock you out. It's a world that says, don't follow Jesus, follow us. You think it's hard to be a middle schooler in this city in these days? You have any idea how much pressure is on these kids to seek and live for the kingdoms of this world instead of the kingdom of God? And yet today, we have a 14-year-old eighth grade student saying no to that. I want to follow Jesus. I want to walk his path and his ways. Today we have a 14-year-old who understands grace is better than any of the goods of this culture. That Jesus' death and resurrection, death and resurrection is for her and her sins and her life and her adoption as a daughter of the king. She's saying, I want that to be more real to me than anything else. And of course, she doesn't have it all figured out yet. Just like you don't, just like I don't. But she's saying, I want to walk that journey. I want to do life with Jesus. You see, friends, the reason God gives us baptism, like the act of baptism, he says, do this thing. Be baptized, be dunked into water, and then raised back up. It's not just for the person in the water. It's supposed to be done publicly in the church for all to see why, because it's not just for her, it's for us. It's for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and we've gotten sleepy. We've gotten drowsy. And then all of a sudden... Just when we're about to fall asleep, along comes a 14-year-old who says, I know Jesus loves me, but I want to love him back and devote my life to him. If that doesn't wake you up, I don't know what will. You see, when Ruby comes out of the water, there'll be this picture of the gospel that we are raised to new life in Christ. Just this, this really clear visual. It's going to be over here in the tank. It's going to be up on the screens. You're going to see it. That we're raised, that she's being, like she's saying, I have been raised to new life in Jesus. And it's a picture that's calling 
for us to remember and hold fast and wake up as a church. It's Jesus saying, just the way she's called to live a new life, remember that you're called to live that same life, that same resurrection life. And if you're here this morning and and you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, we're doing them again in January. We are, we're doing them in January. Like the new year. Here's my challenge to you. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've been baptized, you've made that public declaration, put it on the calendar now and start praying about it now because baptism is your way of saying, I want to live the awake life. Here's what the scriptures say. If you aren't afraid to acknowledge Jesus as Lord before others, he won't be afraid to acknowledge you before the Father. He says, acknowledge me, declare me. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. You feel like your moment has passed. It hasn't. Maybe you're just new to following Jesus and you're like, oh, I still am struggling with some things. Welcome to the club. If you are a follower of Jesus, if he is the Lord of your life, here's what the scriptures say. Be baptized. Maybe Ruby will inspire you this morning. Or maybe you're here this morning, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. You've never made a decision to accept God's free gift of forgiveness and salvation through the death and resurrection of his son. Maybe you've never just made that. Maybe you're just sort of like, oh, I kind of do church and I don't know and I don't want to be too religious and da, da, da. It's really not about that. It's about, is Jesus Lord of your life? He comes to say, I am Lord and King. I've come to be your savior and your King and your Lord. I've come to offer you a new life. Have you ever made that decision? Have you ever just determined Jesus is Lord. That is the primary confession of the Christian, of the follower of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Have you ever made that declaration in your mind and heart? Maybe as Ruby declares that publicly today, maybe today is the day that you say that in your heart and in your mind to God, just, just you and him. Maybe you just, you just say, God, I've never made this decision. I've never crossed this line. I've never just said it, but you are my king and I want to follow you. I received the free gift of salvation that you offer me through the death and resurrection of your son. You, Jesus, are Lord. Friends, if that's you today, you make that decision, come tell somebody. Just come tell me or one of the other pastors or even a friend that you came with, but don't wait on that decision. It's the best decision you will ever make. Do not be lulled to living a sleepy life in this world. Wake up and live the exciting, peaceful, radical, dangerous, satisfying life of walking with Jesus in this world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, today, we just give you thanks for your love, for who you are, for the challenge, for the call to wake up. I pray, Lord, this morning, And I thank you for this 14-year-old who's declaring her faith to bless this moment in her life. May this just be a moment where your love and grace and truth and faithfulness is cemented into her soul as she publicly says, I'm one of yours, I'm your daughter. And Lord, if there's people today who have not received you as Lord and Savior, Holy Spirit, right now, would you speak into their minds and hearts Would you push away all the resistance? Would you push away all the excuses? Would you push away all the doubt or all the fear, Lord, or whatever's holding them back and remind them of your goodness? Just say it straight into their minds and hearts today, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We trust you. We need you. You are king. 
you are Savior, and yes, Jesus, you are Lord. And all God's people said,